0: So people went to them. People went to them because they could give them protection. People went to them because they could watch over them. So that created a dependence for Nimrod. He provided them a false peace and a false protection. But his main goal was not to protect them. His main goal was to build what his plan was to build, which is a tower, a rebellion, organization. They had one language. They had one faith. They had one God. And he was proclaiming himself to be that one God.
1: You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gons.
0: Hey everybody, welcome again to Canary Cry Radio. Thanks for checking in this week. My name is Basil. And I'm
1: Gons, and um, we have a very special guest today. We have Peter Goodgame. He's the author of Red Moon Rising, The Giza Discovery, and most recently, The Second Coming of the Antichrist. And he runs a website called redmoonrising.com where you can find a bunch of articles and um, the most recent article, Isaiah 910 and the Tower of Babel. And he's uh, Skyping in all the way from Little Island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Peter, good game. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Good to hear you guys. Good. To be- cool, man. Well, we just wanted to just jump in and, and you know, we read your article, Isaiah 910 and the Tower of Babel. And uh, you start off the article talking about how you took a, a little break from yeah, writing and researching.
2: Uh, I don't know. For some reason, I, I put all that personal stuff in there at the beginning. But, you know. I, <laughs>
1: well, I think, I, I think it's an important kind of uh, a thing to point out is yeah. the fact that, you know, you, you did so much work looking at the Antichrist, looking at Satan, that uh, I can imagine that it started to kind of wear on you a little bit and make you feel like, hey, you know, that's not what it's all about.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, It was just,
1: uh, well, there was, there was a period of time before
2: where I really uh, called it quits, you know, when I just put everything on the shelf, where I just I just really felt the Spirit of God, you know, just calling to me and and trying to possess me more. And, uh, right. and so I was really pursuing the things of the Holy Spirit for, for, for several months, but then I also had you know, my foot in, you know, in other stuff too. And I realized that I, you know, I was brought to a point where I just realized I needed to just focus completely on God. Right. Just go for that. And right. really that's, that's what I did for really for a couple of years. i just, I didn't really do any end times research. It was right. all, it was all just, uh, just pursuing God and, and learning more about my relationship with the Holy Spirit and, and also building my relationship with, with uh, with the church with the body of Christ with the people around me
0: you know Right. Well, I think that's great. And I think that's something that, you know, we all need to to keep in mind because it's so easy just to get completely engrossed in, uh, you know, in our research and in, in things concerning the end times and all the nonsense that the government's doing. And, you know, and uh, so I really encourage everybody who's listening to, you know, keep that in mind. Um, but also, I, I feel like it was kind of a time of... Uh, you know, it's kind of brooding, like almost being prepared during that time where you you may not have been oh. as effective uh, once you go went back to your research. Uh, if you had not taken that time to get closer to God and then you um, y- you'd mentioned that uh, you started teaching like a, you know, a weekly Bible study. Yeah. And that yeah, sort of well, le- led you into organizing the book.
2: Yeah, it helped a lot. It helped a lot. And I. And I, I basically, we we went through a lot that during that time period, we changed churches. Um, we just, our eyes were opened up to so much more. Um, but then I, I don't know, God just really, um, he kind of, he kind of humbled me and he kind of, uh, made me realize, you know, I don't have the weight of the world on my shoulders. It's on his shoulders. (laughs) Right. Um, and, uh, and also I, I just began to realize that, uh, that, the body of Christ, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's the family of God. And and God really wants us to develop relationships with each other and, and really to be a family. And in the thing about the Internet that's so cool is that you can always find people that are into what you're into.
1: Right, so what right. I
2: found Is When I would go to church, not everybody would be into those things. And when I try and, you know, talk about or push, you know, my research or my my agenda what i think everyone needs to know on other people it, it didn't really it re- didn't really work that well so i was I was brought to a place where i really needed to get humble and and serve people from where they needed you know ask the question answer the questions that they were asking that that's one of the things that christians have a problem doing just in the world in general is we were constantly putting answers in people's face you know, we're answering questions that people aren't even asking. <laughs> right. You know, and Jesus was very practical. He 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 met the need at, of the moment, and then people would ask his, him questions. So it's kind of the thing that I went through for a few years, uh, transitioning to a new church. Um, I didn't I didn't try and come on the scene as Mr. Prophecy Expert. You know, and <laughs> you know, eventually people found out that I'd written a book and that it was something that I was interested in and. And it was my pastors that that opened the door and, and said, you know what? I think we need some um, Bible study. I think we need some teaching on end times. Would you be willing to do it? And and that was great. And, and it was uh, a good time. And and everybody learned together. And uh, it was it was a blessing for
1: everybody all the way around. Yeah, that's that's really encouraging to us in particular because we uh, Basil and I both work at a church as uh, from a technical side and stuff. Yeah. And it's a very seeker friendly church and it's very, uh, outreach driven and, you know, you, you bring up anything prophecy and they look at you like you have two heads, you know?
0: Right. So yeah, yeah.
1: yeah some of the things you're saying there are really just kind of, uh, it's encouraging to know that there is, you know, there is that level of humbleness that we, we ought to take that stance of humbleness <laughs> that, that, uh, that's very important i think and and yeah definitely i think that's why both Bows and i brought it up at the beginning here cuz it's a uh, it, it definitely spoke to us so yeah, yeah. Um, I, mean,
2: I, I still believe that, that a lot of people you know they need a kick in the pants they need to wake up and understand what's going on in the world and you know too many people are you know they're just so engrossed in their day-to-day lives that that they miss on the bigger picture or if they do see a bigger picture it's it's a propaganda driven bigger picture yeah you know, it's not heaven's bigger picture, right? So exactly. There's a fine line that we gotta, um, you know, uh, go through there. You know, as far as um, meeting people's needs, but also, um, well, just just using our gifts that, that the Holy Spirit has given us to to build up the church. You know, so I, I haven't got it all figured out, but I just I just I just try and stay humble and, and use God where, wherever He has
0: me. Absolutely, awesome. Use me, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, awesome. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, let's get into the, some of the, the good stuff.
0: <laughs> Talk about that bigger picture now. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. you, you kind of comment on Jonathan Kahn's work Yeah, and, um, you know, he, he's done a pretty good job of showing some pretty compelling evidence, um, that the events leading up to the judgment of Israel, uh, back in the old Testament has an eerie mirror image of not just kind of the attitude, but more more disturbingly, it seems like the symbolic gestures yeah, uh, that right. that took place at Ground Zero after the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. Uh, can you kind of walk us through some of those things, and, and not not to you know not to reiterate or regurgitate everything Jonathan Khan said, but you know, and how that leads to America, uh, the warning signs that we see in America, the American church, and and ultimately you know the stuff you talk about the Antichrist and and the Tower of Babel.
2: Yeah. Well. Uh, I I read the book like right when it first came out, right in early January. It was like one of the first things I read in 2012 and, and it really impacted me. Um, I'm not saying, um, (laughs) you know, I've I've also heard a lot of criticism of Jonathan Kahn. Right. uh, And, and, you know, it's just, it's just all part of the deal. Um, So I'm not, I'm not claiming him as, as, you know, one of the two witnesses or anything like that, but, um, (laughs) but I was just, it really um, impacted me. And I think, I think he's he's allowing himself to be used by god and and god's using him to get this message out um but yeah it, it has to do with just with the uh, the spiritual state of, of israel before they were wiped out by the assyrians and um and jonathan khan is just able to to show that there's this template of of events and things that uh that took place back in i don't know what it was 800 bc in that time frame and showing that the, the same kind of things uh, seem to be happening since 9-11 in the United States. And, and he, he boils it all down to this particular passage in Isaiah nine ten, 10 And it's a passage where um, the people of Samaria, the, you know, the northern kingdom of Israel, um, God is saying, this is what you're saying in your pride and stoutness of heart. The bricks are falling down, but we will... Build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Now that's you know, it's interesting because <laughs> this this really struck me because I had just uh, written the rough draft of my book that that I I have like four chapters that cover um, of my book that cover Isaiah chapters chapters nine to fourteen. It's like the centerpiece of of my book really and of, of my thesis regarding the identity of the Antichrist. Um, but uh, but Jonathan Kahn and so there's a there's a, a difference here though because I'm I'm using the Septuagint version of the Old Testament because hmm. it reads differently and has different things to say. Jonathan Kahn was using the Masoretic text. So right. as, was, as I was reading, it, as at first I was a little turned off, saying, you know, this guy's kind of got it all wrong. They, that's not really what they meant to say. But then I, as just as I began to press into it, I realized that you know what. God is God decided to use the Masoretic text in this in this point, you know. So if somebody's going to ask me which is the which is the proper text, which is the one that's you know anointed by the Holy Spirit, I will just say uh, both. You know, God God's using both just to, to to speak to us today.
0: Right, but, right.
2: Yeah, I, it's not a question of trying to figure out which which is the authentic version. What did Isaiah himself write down? Because we're never going to know that. Um, right, but. Uh, Both both versions are very, very important to me. You know, the Masoretic Text is really, it's the basis of all our Bibles. um, King James, NIV, uh, ESV, whatever, you know, what have you. But the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was actually translated, you know, several hundred years before the Masoretic Texts were compiled. So I just, and I just notice, I pay attention to this. I see there's a lot of scholars that are really turning back to that and, Referring to it as as the original Old Testament of the early church, so there's it's beginning to receive a, a great deal more credibility, right? And hopefully, hopefully even more after you know people read what I have written in my book. Um, but okay, getting back to to Jonathan Khan, um, I don't know if if uh, you want to get specific, but um, there's just uh, what did he he had um, harbingers right in his book? Yeah, break. He had nine specific things where this is what happened. In Isaiah's time, and then this is what happened in America's time after 9/11. And it had to do with an invasion from the Assyrians, and he equates them with, um, you know, Islamic fundamentalists. Um, and uh, what else? It had to do with uh, with an attack. It had to do with uh, with fallen bricks, um, with the rebuilding with the hewn, with hewn stones. And and for me, a really crucial part was when he showed the sycamore that was that was blown away. Right that was replanted with a cedar so I, I really think that you know god just opened his eyes to these things and and he took the time to write it down and then he had an opportunity um to reach a to reach a greater audience through through the marketing of a commodity you know his book and right this, this is just uh how society works these days and i know he's received a lot of criticism. Um, I've, it's been on my, like on my blog, for instance, people have criticized it, said, oh, he's just, he just did this to make money. Um, hmm. but the reality is if, if he hadn't, uh, gone that route, he wouldn't have had the, the, um, the spotlight, you know, the, it wouldn't have been as promoted as much through Charisma Magazine, Sid Roth, through, through all, of, through World Net Daily, all, all these right. avenues. That's, that's how Christians get their they're news these days. So God's going to use those, those avenues.
1: Right. And I think it's also important to, to point out, just kind of going back on a little bit of the text issue as well, that, yes. that, that, you know, it seems that God is bigger than what we can imagine him to be as far as like the one correct you know version or the one way to do things or, you know, it's, I just think it's, it's, it's a silly issue to try to, to really nitpick at. Yeah. And I think, you know, as much criticism as a lot of like most prophecy teachers are going to at some point encounter some sort of criticism because it doesn't align with a particular view, uh, whether it's, you know, the rapture or, you know, the tribulation time period or whatever it is. And, you know, I think um, with someone like Jonathan Cahn, it's, it's interesting how, you know, he's gotten so much press, but also the, it's been a good thing for the church in some sense that there is this sort of you know, rebirth of interest in prophecy in general. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of came after this uh, the success of the book. So I don't I wouldn't say it's all bad. You know, even though
0: not at all. Yeah. yeah
1: so okay, so go on. What was the um, some of the things that you talked about in the in the article? You you uh, you list Israel and the Laodicean Church, the King well, of yeah. Babylon. Yeah. It's it, we always need to pay attention when
2: when in scripture, especially when it's dealing with prophecy that could. That could apply to us, you know. When when God says, you know, when God reveals people's hearts, you know, it says in in um in Revelation two twenty three, Jesus speaks to the church and, and says, "I am He who searches hearts and minds." So in other words, you know, we can't hide our motivations, our desires, you know, our our true our true heart from God. God sees it. Jesus sees it. He knows. And in this passage in Israel, in in Isaiah nine ten. God is revealing the heart of Israel. Right. Saying, look, your heart is full of pride and, and, and you're rebellious. And what you're speaking to me is it's a message of defiance against me. And, and I just, uh, I, I mentioned a couple other places, um, in, in Jesus's message to the Laodicean church, it says, you know, Jesus is, he doesn't say he's revealing their heart, but he just says, because you're saying I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Um, that's why I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, you're lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot, and I'll spew you out of my mouth. right So, you know, th- those two cases Israel and the church, you have right there, God revealing what they're thinking, you know. And then the other two are uh, this is this could, we could talk about this for a couple of hours, really, this, uh, the whole idea of the king and queen of Babylon. And, uh, I don't know if you've seen that. Did you, I guess, link to that webpage where I put those two texts side by side, Isaiah um, 14, right next to Revelation 18, and you can see uh, verse by verse how it's, it's a parallel, really, it's a judgment. You know, Isaiah 14 is a judgment against the king of Babylon, and uh-huh. Revelation 18 is a judgment against the queen of Babylon, and they're just, they're they're parallel, and they're similar, and they're both things that happen at the very end of the age. Right,
0: it's and, fascinating. Yeah. No, I, I I haven't taken a look at that, but we should uh, definitely yeah, post that in it, the show notes. It's, there, it's,
2: I got a I got a link right there in in the uh, in in the essay. Um, but um yeah, so so God says about the king of Babylon, you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Uh, so we know that familiar reference to Lucifer, right? Right. And, and the queen of Babylon. Um, It's uh, in Revelation 18 regarding the queen of Babylon. um, An angel says, how much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death, mourning, and famine. So here you have God revealing the, the proud and rebellious heart of the king of Babylon and then the proud and rebellious heart. Of of the Queen of Babylon, where she kind seems to think that she's invincible, you know. Um, so it's 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 good for us to pay attention when God reveals people's hearts, and we need to. It's it's always it's a reality check for us to make sure that our hearts are are humble, that our hearts are soft, and that that we're not resisting God, and that we're we're just an open book to God, and we're not trying to hide anything. We're always an open book to God, but sometimes we're we're not an open book even to ourselves, you know. Right. Right. So um, let's see here. Yeah, going on in my in my article um, that the whole Isaiah nine ten thing just leads off into um, just a series of judgments that God makes against Israel. And there's this particular phrase that keeps popping up for all this: His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. In other words, it's like it's like God's got His hand out to to smack Israel, and He's saying. You know, one after another, these things are going to happen, but I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And finally, when it gets, really, the whole thing doesn't really wrap up until the very end of Isaiah 14. Well, Isaiah 14:27 is where this whole thing that began with Isaiah 9:10 ends up. Right. Um, you guys, where do you want to go from here? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well... Yeah, it's it's so compelling. I mean, it's so deep. What about? I mean, you go on to talk about the Tower of Babel here in in yeah. the article, and um, reading the article, I've learned things that I haven't actually known about some of the things that they have planned and and how you connect that to right. Um, right. the skyscrapers and whatnot. So yeah, touch on that a little bit because I think I think okay. that's very compelling. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, right. This relates back to Jonathan Cahn, and this is why this is why I was intrigued by what he was saying. Because he, he's saying that, and, and he uh, he demonstrated it, that, that really uh, the leaders of the United States of America were responding to God after 9-11 the same way that Israel responded to God in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 10. okay And he talked about how that verse was quoted from by, I think it was Tom Daschle and John Edwards, right? I, I think it was two senators, basically, one Republican, one Democrat. And, um, and they... They used that in context of the rebuilding of the World Trade Center, but they didn't understand that that was that verse that they quoted from was a message of defiance against God that released this terrible judgment upon Israel. Mm-hmm. So you know it was it's just you know what really uh, what I shared with a lot of my friends was the the video, the documentary film that uh, Joe Farah of World Net Daily put together. And when he when he just, you know, he's got the video footage and the audio of these guys saying that, you know, reading that scripture. And it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, these people are clueless. They don't have no idea what they're saying.
0: Right. Yeah, that's crazy. That's bizarre.
2: It was totally bizarre. And, you know, it's like they got some some script writer or some, you know, speech writer that that is just looked in a concordance for under rebuilding or something, you know, let's. Let's find, uh, you know, some spiritual-sounding verse that we can throw in here so that we sound religious. Uh, that'll make America happy.
0: And right. Well, they- do you do you think that there could be some sort of uh, purpose behind that? I mean, I I know a lot of times we um, we see that uh, the New World Order or the you yeah. know the powers that be sort of use dual yeah. meanings and sort of hide those sure. those sort of no, that, rebellious that's, that's
1: things. A
2: that's a whole different um, perspective. I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. I mean, that's even scarier if, if, if these people were doing it deliberately, if they knew what they were saying. You right. know, that, yeah, that's. But it's possible. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Um, but uh, so Isaiah nine ten is really the center point of his whole, his whole book and, the, and video and Jonathan Khan's whole message. Um, but uh, I, what, I, what I found, though, is, is in his research, in his book, he really ends up you know he tries to end up on a positive note saying come on people of god we can we can turn this around we just gotta you know we gotta intercede on behalf of the nation we gotta change our ways we gotta get holy we gotta you know we gotta do all the right things because it's clear that god's judgment is about to fall so he ends up with the scripture from second chronicles seven fourteen, mm. and it's very well known it's like and and you hear it mentioned you know, a lot more when it, when it's election cycle time, you know, right. But he's saying, you know, Oh boy, we gotta, we gotta pray for our nation. We gotta get holy. We gotta change things. We need a better leadership. But, but that verse simply says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So, you know, I believe that's a great, prayer to pray and i believe that that god answers that prayer you know whenever you know whenever a nation truly re- you know repents and it seeks god and wants to change their ways and is willing to actually walk out and demonstrate the fruit of repentance you know which is sometimes we f- we forget right you know, we, like the, we like the emotional prayer meeting and we think that actually does something well that's good that we change our mind i mean that's what repent means to change your mind but but there's a, the fruit of repentance is actually, that's, that's where it's proven if it was true or not. Um, so, I, I believe that, that Jonathan Khan he ended it on a good note, and, and it's good to, to exhort the, the nation to, to do that.
1: Right. right. And it's kind of yeah. like, you know, it's, that's being salt, you know, uh, preventing that decay. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's exactly what that prayer really um, kind of reflects. Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Yeah, you, you talked about how that's uh, that's sort of where he left where he leaves off, and um, how that sort of you know how his book sort of prompted you to uh, well helped you or, or coincided with you and yeah. your book. Yeah, um, it, where where did you sort of pick up after that?
2: Well, I was I was coming at this whole thing Isaiah nine ten from a different perspective, from the Septuagint perspective. I had just written this book that just was. It's, it, it became available today on Tom Horn's website, so today is the first time that people can actually order it, and uh, so uh, I'm excited about that, but um, the title of my book is The Second Coming of the Antichrist, and I explain that, that Isaiah chapter 14, in this, um, this Old Testament prophecy regarding the King of Babylon, I believe the King of Babylon, who's also referred to as Lucifer, is the Antichrist. And it goes all the way back to 3100 BC to the to the Tower of Babel to King Nimrod, and uh, it's it's deep, it's heavy, but I I I, may, I lay out a good case. This is something that I've been working on since 2005, mm-hmm. and um, it's finally it's finally all put together, and uh, and I've I've done the best I can to to share what what the Lord's put on my heart. So it's just up to people to to take a look and and. And see what they think. But um, regarding um, Isaiah 9:10, I, I mentioned that in my book because of its relationship to the Tower of Babel,
1: mm. and my
2: understanding that the Tower of Babel was—that was the original, um, you know, the post—that was the original post-flood rebellion against God. Right. Right after the flood, God basically, you know, just gives a few simple rules to Noah. Um, you know, go spread out to Noah and his descendants. Spread out upon the earth, multiply. You know, take possession of the entire earth, and uh, and then he also said that uh, they were free to eat, um, free to eat meat, free to kill animals for food. So the curse of vegetarianism was lifted. Um, the curse of vegetarians <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay i'm kidding there but, but uh, oh yeah yeah
1: basil's a vegetarian so he's a little offended <laughs> Sorry,
2: I think. come on
1: man
2: <laughs> i'm sure you're way healthier than all of us <laughs> but uh, no you know what i was raised seventh adventist so there were hardcore vegetarians and uh so it, but it's good that's actually good um but, uh, yeah, well,
0: especially with the, uh, you know, Americans' meat market here, we got uh, some some huge problems. But yeah, please continue.
2: Um, so, yeah, the, the rules after the flood is spread out upon the earth. Um, uh, you can go ahead and eat meat. And and the third one, of course, was don't be killing each other. That's basically what God told Noah and his descendants. You know, whoever slays a man, uh, you know, by the sword, he will be slain or, or something along those lines. Um, anyway... Uh, what I found, though, is that Nimrod was the first guy after the flood who actually began to build a kingdom based on force and violence, and then the Tower of Babel. Um, so his whole kingdom was against went against that commandment, and then the building of the Tower of Babel was that was a time when people stopped, you know, going out to the whole earth and and taking over the whole earth and subduing it. They they actually um, they were they were moving back into the cities, right. And, They were congregating back in the plains of shinar and it was going going against god's plan so there's a whole there's a whole bunch that can be dug up there regarding the nature of of that original empire um there's a whole bunch of archaeological evidence about this this phenomenon known as the uruk expansion it's in the archaeological record um Mm -hmm. experts talk about this period from like 3600 to 3100 bc where they say it was the first um, case of, uh, of globalization. It's, they refer to it as a globalization phenomenon where this kingdom expanded based on trade that was backed up with overwhelming military power. And they had their little satellites, uh, cities all around the ancient Near East. And but Uruk was like the central spoke for this um, you know, commerce based, military, militarily enforced, uh, superpower really uh right nimrod was the king of the world's very first superpower and
0: right and that's how we we sort of get the correlation between you know nimrod and sort of his uh one world government there yeah. that's that's yeah. so praised by some of the elite nowadays yeah how does how does that sort of fit in with uh what you see well, happening today
2: yeah well uh, oh well let's get to that later <laughs>
0: okay all right <laughs>
2: I mean, that's definitely where we're going right. let me get to what it says in isaiah 9 10 in the septuagint um because i'm you know i'm explaining about the tower of babel and how that was something that flew in the face of god it was you know that empire was totally against what he wanted to see happen um and then the building of that tower was a you know it was pride it was rebellion and god eventually says i got to You know it's time i'm gonna i'm gonna destroy this tower i'm gonna divide the people i'm gonna force them to spread out by dividing them according to different languages um so the tower of babel is like the ultimate the the original symbol of 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 defiance and rebellion against god okay so if we go to isaiah 9 and in the septuagint version let me just read it from isaiah 9 chapter uh, verse 8 says the lord has sent death upon jacob and it has come upon israel and all the people of Ephraim and they that dwelt in Samaria shall know who say in their pride and lofty heart, the bricks are fallen down, but come, let us hew stones and cut down sycamores and cedars and let us build for ourselves a tower. Okay. So they say, come, let us, the, the bricks are fallen down, but come, let us with stones and sycamores and cedars, let us build for ourselves a tower. Now, if you compare that with what it says in Genesis 11, three to four, it's the people at the, at, in the plains of Shinar say, um, then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and let us build for ourselves a tower. There's a parallel there, and it's very intentional. And this is, that's what God is saying. God is saying that it is, this, it is if Israel is saying in their hearts, Look, the Tower of Babel's fallen down, but let's rebuild it. Let's take stones and sycamores and cedars and, and let's build it again. That's really what I believe is God's accusation against Israel at this time. It's not that they wanted to rebuild the destruction that had happened from the invading Assyrians. It's that they were saying in their heart, you know, we're so far from God. Let's just, uh, you know, let's, let's redo this ultimate symbol that, that, of rebellion that really began the whole system of, of paganism right, way back in Nimrod's day.
0: Wow. So that's,
2: that's what I, I believe the Septuagint version is trying to bring across. And that, to me, uh, there's a whole nother level of, <laughs> of, of depth to this if we look at that. If we look at this as, as, as that, that passage saying, the bricks of the Tower of Babel have fallen down, but come, let us use stones and cut timber so that we can build it once again. Now, what if, you know, uh, Jonathan Kahn really, he, he explains all these different um, signs and symbols and events that took place Seem to line up with the Masoretic reading of the text. And all I do is I show that if we look at that, um, you know, if we look at Isaiah 9:10, which which was the verse that was read by America's leaders after 9, 11, right? That is that desire to rebuild the tower of Babel. I just, after reading Jonathan Kahn's book, I remembered back to what had happened in in the years after 9, 11, when people were when there was a, um, a discussion over what they were going to rebuild the World Trade Center with. And there was a discussion and there was a, you know, there was a group of architects that got together. And the guy that won really that ended up being in charge, even though he had to make a bunch of, um, he had to, you know, come into agreement and make a lot of changes. But his name was Daniel Libeskind, And he wanted to build uh, a 70 story tower that number 70 relates to Babylon. Right. And- he also wanted to include within that tower uh, what, it, what what was referred to as something along the lines of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon that he referred to as the gardens of the world. So I just remember listening to all this chatter going on and saying to myself, you know, my God, it looks like they want to rebuild the Tower of Babel at Ground Zero. So right. Wow. Connected there for me after reading... The research that Jonathan Khan uncovered.
0: Wow. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's blowing my mind. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a
1: little heavy. <laughs> it's like my brain is going.
0: So, uh, you you mentioned that they that they had made changes. Now now I'm all uh, on the uh, the new Tower of Babel mode real quick. But yeah. you mentioned that they were there were changes or something. I mean, where did yeah. that land?
2: Is um. The Gardens of the World concept got eliminated, mm-hmm. right? And he wanted to do 70 stories. The number, the number 70 is key because that was the number. Are you guys familiar with Mike Heiser's work? Yeah, absolutely. And the Sons right. of God, and and the division of the nations, and the, the fact divine, the Divine Council. Yeah, the Divine Council. That's that's awesome. If you guys are on on page with that, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's really important, you know, because. I believe that, you know, Genesis 10 has a list of 70, specifically 70 different tribes.
1: Right. And
2: and I think it's Deuteronomy 28 goes on to explain that, that at the time of the division of the nations, which was the Tower of Babel, which was really the one, you know, that set it up, that's, that really made it happen. Um, not only were the nations divided according to different languages, but they were divided and handed over to the authority uh, essentially, of, of a fallen angel. And there were 70 of them. So 70 is like the, the code number for Babylon that continues to pop up um, in, in all my research on Babylon. So um, but so he wanted to build the Freedom Tower 70 stories, but even that got changed. And, and now it's a 104 story. It used to be called the Freedom Tower. Now it's called um, One World Trade Center. So it's 104 stories, no hanging gardens of Babylon, and... Um, but the spire at the top reaches a height of seventeen seventy six feet. <laughs> so you know, all this all this symbolism it's important for them and right. it's understandable. But you don't really see a lot of Babylonian symbolism there, but for me that's not really important. What's important right. is what I saw as being on the heart of these people that were involved. And it is you know, it's just it's just symbolism. It's just demonstrating certain things. And right. ultimately the question isn't what's on the heart of the people that want to build the tower. The question is what is on the heart of the people that are leading our nation? What's on their heart? Are their hearts tuned towards God, or are they focused on building empire and create and accumulating wealth and power and and all those kinds of things? Are they are do they have this uh, you know this this uh, uh, attitude of defiance towards God? Are they huh. rebellious or are they, or are they seeking God?
0: Right. Are, well, well, I where think they're,
2: where they're, where they
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. I think we all uh, know where they lie on that one.
2: Yeah. But okay. Just to finish, just to wrap up this tower of Babel um, thing here, um, Lebeskind, this architect, um, he's, it seems like he's transferred his ideas for recreating hanging gardens into his, into a proposal that he has right now to build what he calls the New York tower. That will be built at One Madison Avenue, right near the Empire State Building. And there's actually on my on my essay, there's a picture of what that. It's a conceptual, you know,
0: the rendering there.
2: Yeah, yeah. But it's it's a beautiful uh, tower. But you can yeah. see the greenery within the glass that wraps around the outside of this tower.
0: So yeah, it's it's, it's really it's, futuristic, futuristic looking.
2: It's it's cool, but it's like this this Lebeskins guy. He really wants to build this this tower with all this Babylonian symbolism,
1: right? right?
2: His plans didn't work with the freedom tower. And now he's transferring over here to the New York tower. So that's just, just an interesting thing, but yeah, getting back to the whole geopolitical realm, you know, it's has oh, got to turn off the phone here. I, I just, I did an interview with Derek Gilbert, uh, last week. And, and, uh, yeah, my oh. dad came in and used the ice maker. <laughs> <laughs> right behind me right in the middle of it uh, so going back to this this temple of babel imagery and um you know how jonathan kahn ended his book on this call to embrace second chronicles seven fourteen. all all i say is you know i believe in that verse i believe in that um you know that call to to pray and to seek god and to you know expect him to heal our land if we if we repent but i i really believe that what God is saying is He's He's taking this to a whole nother level. And what I say is, if if Isaiah 9 10 is indeed a reflection of our nation's heart today, and that they want to it's as if they are trying to rebuild the Tower of Babel, um, then there's another text besides that, that that we need to respond to. And I look to the message that's found in Revelation eighteen, verses four to eight. Right. And this is what it says. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Um, you know, and it goes on and on, and it talks about the judgment of end times Babylon. And um, so this is, you know, my, my book is, the, my book that comes out today, it's, it's focused on the subject and, and revealing the identity of what I believe is is the king of Babylon, the Antichrist. Um, but what I've been working on lately, and, and you can see a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of posts that I've put on my blog. Um, I'm really digging into the subject of the Queen of Babylon, because I really believe that the King and Queen of Babylon. There's these parallels and there's these similarities here. The King and Queen of Babylon. There's it's like the, they're the infernal counterpart to to Jesus and the Bride of Christ. Right. right. Think so, I, uh, you know, does that make sense? I mean, yeah, no.
1: I've, I think I've heard you speak as well about the kind of the correlation with Eve. Yeah. And um, yeah, give us a little bit of that, because that, I'm still trying to grasp that whole concept.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. This is something that just that uh, just hit me just recently. Um, you know, the whole the whole gospel story. You know, we're we're in like this epic drama. <laughs> The human race—we're part of this massive, epic drama. You know, it's a love story, but it's—it's it's full of, of heroes and villains and intrigue and like last-minute saves and and all this um like irony. You know, like, it's—it's it's ironic that that you know that Jesus would come as a humble carpenter and um, just have this small circle of friends that he'd, he'd end up you know, being killed like a common criminal. And that was it. That was a triumph. That was the whole That was God's triumph over the whole, over the whole, you know, all the evil kingdoms of the world. That's how God triumphed over them. Right. That's, that's totally upside down. That's totally opposite to the way we're taught to think. That's not triumph. That's total, total utter, complete failure. But that's how God wanted to do it, you know? Right. And, and so it's just it's just amazing if we can just tap into the mind of Christ I mean we'll just we'll just see this world in a totally different perspective totally different perspective but going back to this whole story you know it began it began in the Garden of Eden and it began with with Eve taking that forbidden fruit and it began with that temptation and I believe there's a there's a verse I think it's in second John, that really boils down all of sin into three things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Okay. Right. And we see that the devil used that. Well, the devil was part of it, but we see that threefold, um, uh, really, uh, strategy for temptation against Eve because she came to that tree and she said, you know, what does she say? She said, it looks like it's good for food. It looks pleasant to the eyes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the snake says, um, it will make you like God. Why don't you go ahead and eat it? So right there, you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And she fell for it. Now we have the same strategy that, that the devil used against Jesus. When, he, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, the first temptation was, you're hungry. Take these stones, turn them into bread. The second temptation was, check it out. I'm going to take you up. I'm going to show you all the glittering, awesome, wealthy, powerful kingdoms of the world. Look at that. Doesn't that look good? You can have it if you worship me. And then he took him on the the pinnacle of the temple and said, you know, don't you know who you are? You're the son of God. You could throw yourself down and angels would would protect you. They would catch you up. So the devil uses the same strategy. The lust of the eye, the the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Okay? So that that's that's the strategy. That that uh, the devil uses that that's just it's part of the world you know it's it's not just the devil it's the world and it's part of of just uh, carnal human nature
0: those mm-hmm. are
2: things that that can that we need to be aware of um, so if we if we look at Eve as as the mother of original sin and there's a couple of uh, couple of verses that kind of um, um, lay this out I, I, maybe I should click around and try and try and find them so I can. You guys got what time is it? It's almost eight. Wow, <laughs> we got time. We got time. We're good. I got about another half hour, but okay. I just uh, i want to i want to lay this out because it's I think it's pretty incredible. I actually got a chance to uh, to preach on this July fifteenth, and then I was invited to speak to a to a group on August third, um, and I'm actually I'm gonna go with my wife to. Uh, to Guam on her business trip. And I got, I got some things set up over there. Oh, very cool. But regarding, regarding Eve. Okay. It all began with Eve. It all began with Eve. And I know that there's verses that talk about how sin entered the world through Adam. Um, you know, I believe it was, I believe it was confirmed with Adam, you know, when, when Eve offered him that fruit and, and he took it. Right. Uh-huh. Confirmed. I think, I think there could have been a better way. Um, I think there. I think it could have been avoided. Uh, Adam could have. There was another way to, to get out of it. Um, but um, okay, if we go to First Timothy chapter two verses thirteen to fourteen, we have the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy, and he says, um, "Just in this these verses, for Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression." Okay, so it's like Paul here wants to put it all on Eve. Right. <laughs> this is. Um, um, we're lucky there's no there's no women in this conversation. Um, <laughs> but Paul's using this really to explain why um, why uh, the women in the church need to be subservient to their husbands or something along those lines. But but basically what it says here is Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. But this this is this can come back to affect us men, because what you know, we know that Adam sinned. But here it says Adam was not deceived. So what that means is that Adam sinned willingly. Right. So, you know, how do we how do we work that out? But the point is that that Paul is saying that the woman was the one who was in the transgression. She's the one that started it. You know, it began with Eve when she was tempted and ate of the fruit. So that that's what started it all off. So I really believe that that uh, you know what it's saying is Eve is she's the mother of original sin. It all goes back to her. And we kind of have this you know, as Christians, we read that and we look at you know pure and innocent Eve walking in the garden, makes one little slip up, and then bam! It's like you know, God the Father comes with you know judgment and and you know fire and brimstone and and puts the hammer down. And then we think, oh, that's kind of harsh, right? But but really, we got to understand you know what they had, and God is always true in, in His judgment. So. um, it, I, I have a I have a whole preach on this, but uh, but let me just get into where I take this and how this how this goes into into Babylon is because I believe that what was started in the Book of Genesis is wrapped up in the Book of Revelation, and it goes specifically to this verse in Revelation eighteen verse fourteen, okay, and just before that we have a list it it, it gives the judgment against Babylon against this woman against the city. And then it talks about, and then it gives this long list of the commodities that she's been consuming, that the merchants have grown rich selling to her. Right. And then it says there's this there's this verse that says afterwards, then the fruits that your soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. Okay? Now it was just a few months ago that this really struck me, and I and what I see is that this is like the, f- the final page on what Eve started because it's talking about fruits.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Never, hmm. I've never seen this before. This is, a, this is like a pretty sweet Bible study right now. <laughs>
2: yeah, this is heavy duty, man. This is, um, I think this explains a lot. But that's, that's what it's saying. Eve was drawn away by, you know, there's, I think it's in, in, in Genesis that it says that her, her soul lusted after, her heart lusted after that fruit. And then there's other verses that talk about how corruption entered the world through lust. You know, that's what, she saw that, that fruit, and she said, I want that. And here in Revelation, it's saying, the fruits that you so, that your soul lusted after are gone from you. And all the things which were, and there's two Greek words here, all the things which were leparos and lampros are departed from thee, and you'll find them no more at all. Okay, so, and so this word fruits is opora, which is a Greek word that refers specifically to the ripe fruit of trees that are harvested in autumn. Kind of like an apple.
1: Okay.
0: Okay.
2: <laughs> um, but this word leparos, it comes from the root word lipos, which means grease. Um, Strongs defines it as things which pertain to a sumptuous and delicate style of living. Um, other definitions are greasy, fattening, sleek, lustrous. Uh, it, it really it gives the impression of being juicy, tasty, and succulent is like the perfect word for it. liparos huh. Okay, Um, Then the word lampros is shining, brilliant, splendid, magnificent, um, dazzling, glittering, like um, bling bling would be a modern way to describe it. That's what lampros is. So what we have here is in Revelation 18, 14, I really believe that it it is like the final judgment on Eve because this woman, this great prostitute is referred to as the mother of of prostitutes, and of all the abominations upon the earth. The mother. Okay? There's only one person in human history that can be, you know, that everything is on her head. And it even goes back to, there's a passage in there somewhere that talks about how all the blood that has been shed is still to her. So, you know, this 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 is hardcore, and I know... It's heavy. People that might, you know, have an issue with this, but... But really, what it is it saying here in Revelation 18.14, it says, the, fruit, the fruits that you're so lusted after are gone from thee, and all the things that were good for food and pleasant to the eyes are departed from thee. It's the very same thing that attracted Eve at the very beginning. When she looked at that fruit and said, Oh, that looks good for food, that looks pleasant to the eyes. And then the devil said, Yeah, and it'll make you like God too. So what we have in Revelation saying that this whole thing that began in Genesis is being wrapped up here. And this is the final judgment. So I really believe that, um, that mystery Babylon, okay. She simply represents all wickedness, all iniquity upon the whole earth. I really believe that, that when it comes down to it at the final judgment, you're either going to be a part of the bride of Christ, or you're going to be a part of the whore of Babylon. There's no middle ground, right? That's why I don't look at, at, at end, at end Times Babylon, as Mystery Babylon, as, oh, that's the Catholic Church. You know, as long as you're not Catholic, you don't need to worry about that. No, it's way huger than that. Right. It's not, it's not apostate Judaism. You know, it's not, it's not Jerusalem. It's not, you know, it, it's not, even though there's a lot of, uh, I know scholars bring up a lot of um, similarities and comparisons there. Um, you know, there was a time where Jerusalem was part of her system. When Israel was re- was in rebellion, they were part of her system. But this this woman is the mother of abominations, the mother of prostitutes, and it all went back to when her soul lusted after something that she'd not, you know, something that was not of God. Right. So I believe that um, that's that's just how Genesis and Revelation tie together. And I do the same thing with with my studies in the King of Babylon, where you know I believe that the Antichrist first shows up. In, in Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod, and he, you know, he's the first of those seven kings, and he comes again as the last, as the eighth. He's one of the, you know, he's the one who once was, now is not, and yet shall come. He's one of the right. seven, he's an eight. In other words, there's seven of those kings, but there's eight appearances of them, because one of them has to appear twice. So, Genesis and Revelation, we really got to understand our origins, if we're ever going to figure out, you know, how it's all wrapped up.
0: Well, that makes total sense to me. I mean, that, uh, you know, in any good book, there should be some sort of correlation between the beginning and the end.
2: Yeah, it all comes to culmination. And, and um, you know, if, if, you, if you read my, my blog post, so, you know, I, I explain just how the Babylon is really put up there in complete distinction to the new Jerusalem. You know, Babylon is the city of the world. Jerusalem is the city of God. There are two cities, and they're in opposition to each other. That's why, you know, And some people will say, well, Jerusalem's referred to as the great city, so Babylon is Jerusalem. No, there's two great cities. You know, Jerusalem is a great city, and Babylon is a great city. Babylon is going to be utterly destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be, you know, become the, the, the throne of, of Jesus Christ in the millennium. So uh, Babylon doesn't have anything to do with apostate Judaism, only only to the extent that, you know, if you're not a part of the Bride of Christ, you're a part of Babylon. So that includes, yeah, that includes Catholics who are not part of the Bride of Christ. It includes, it includes, you know, Jews who are not a part of the Bride of Christ. It, it includes everybody who's not a part of the Bride of Christ. It's it's the culmination of wickedness, and and there 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 are like things that are given to Babylon at the end of time. It, I think it's in Revelation 16 that talks about how. The cup of God's wrath was given to Babylon. That's what they did. And then in in Revelation 19, it says that the bride has made herself ready. And white robes was given to her. So you're either given a cup of wrath or you're given white robes. There's no middle ground. That's that's what we're going to see as these end times continue. That that the gray area is going to disappear. And that's why Jesus is saying to his people, come out of her, my people. Get out of Babylon. So I really believe ultimately it's it's a call to holiness.
0: Right.
2: It it's a call to holiness. We we're, we're so, you know, Jesus didn't just come to to give us a set of beliefs. He actually came to teach us a new way of life, a new way of living. Christianity is a life system, not just a belief system. Right. And and this is where I can really I can really go left wing on you guys right now and talk about how capitalism and and just the a market-based social s- structure where the love of money it becomes the root of all of our <laughs> of everything in our society. There's a multitude of evils that come out of that.
1: Right, and I think I've mentioned before on this show as well. But the the, the when you talk about the separation, the you know one or the other, the 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 distinction. Uh, that's something that I've definitely felt. You know, it's not just something I see. I, I understand it from a kind of a. You know, conceptually and everything, but I, I'm really starting to feel the separation where, where you know, anything that's not holy, that's not godly, is literally there's like a dividing line where it's yeah. one or the other, and and you know that distinction in my mind in just the last you know year or so, you know, really starting to look into a lot of this stuff has been very clear and almost it's it's almost eerie how you know you watch the news or something and it's it's just so abundantly clear. And um, yeah, so so go into that. Go left wing, man. <laughs> I'm I'm okay with that.
2: Look, cap- capitalism is a life system too. Right. And, and I really believe that um, you know uh, you know I can get I can get real specific about Babylon because you know I, I believe that uh, you know I believe it's it's this huge general thing and that it includes all the you know all the unsaved people on the face of the earth at the second coming. You know that's Babylon. Right. Okay? But I also but I also believe that um, there's a strategy. I mean, you guys remember Zechariah chapter five that talks about the the woman that's put into this ephah, and and uh, the lid is placed over it, and then it's carried away by two storks, I believe, or something. Right. Right. Yeah. It says she's taken to. It says this is wickedness, and it says she's taken to the land of Shinar. Other versions say to Babylonia, to for a for a base where, where she'll be set in her place. Um, uh, what that shows me, simply, is that is that this, um, and I believe that, that that relates to Babylon. I believe that is, you know, that's iniquity, that's that's wickedness. Um, but that just shows me that this principality, you know, is, um, <laughs> is mobile. So I believe that, that she, you know, sets up her power center throughout history has gone from place to place. And if you're going to look at a, at a, uh, a power center, uh, in the 21st century that everything revolves around, but similar to the original Babylon where Uruk was like the, the center of this superpower where it had all the spokes going out to all these other, you know, satellite colonies and cities. Um, yeah. New, New York City's huge in this. New York City's huge in this.
1: Yeah. And you know, I wanted to ask you as well because you know, <laughs> I can't help but think about, you know, some of the mega churches in America and one of their models is the satellite campus, you know, of trying to have that central location and and going out. What, how does this uh, reflect on the church, especially in America? I mean, we, we, you know, we live in America, so we kind of have a a better grasp of what's going on here, but is there, I mean, it's a little bit more, uh, I guess it's more difficult to understand what the, you know, the effects of this are in the church And because it's it's a lot harder to point at a church and say, you guys are, you know, an apostate church or whatever, (laughs) you know. So, what what are your thoughts on that?
2: I just, I really believe that we have such a huge cultural blindness that living in this, uh, I I just wish you guys could read this book called 5,000 Years of Debt by a guy by the name of David Graber And I, I put it out on my newsletter a couple of times referring it to people. But, um, but it really just gives you a whole different perspective on what a market-based economy is when all human relations are based on a cash transaction,
0: you know, right.
2: more and more. I mean, just, just having a total market-based economy where everything is based on, you know, there's just, uh, we're just, my goodness, we, we are the Laodicea church to a T. You know, that right. church was so, was so blind. And so focused on on things and their wealth that that they didn't even know what to repent for, you know. <laughs> right. Honestly, they didn't even know what to repent for. And I look at the church, you know. And really, I look at these issues that that really stir up the church in in America. Um, there's two things, you know. There's there's abortion and there's the homosexual agenda. Those two things just really really stir up the church and. But I really believe those those two things have an economic root, <laughs> ultimately. Um, but I just look at, particularly at, at um, the homosexual agenda. That that really irritates us, you know. And we're really fired up about passing laws to prevent that kind of thing. And and I just you know I I don't like it either, you know. I don't. I don't. I wish you know I wish that the nuclear family and that and that uh, you know that we didn't have. Uh, this stuff going on, but but um, look, ultimately, what what I've come to believe is simply that that the the rise of homosexuality is simply like the last system, or the last symptom of a system that has been bad for a long time.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, right. when you, especially when you look at um, you know Sodom and Gomorrah, and that.
2: Yeah. I think it's
1: Ezekiel eighteen that
2: talks about the judgment against against Sodom, and it begins by saying God judged Sodom because they didn't take care of the poor. Right. You, know, you tell you tell that to a, you know, a hardcore right-wing conservative and they'll be like, "What? Our poor people have it so good. There's all this socialism going on." And
0: right. <laughs> well, that was actually something I've been meaning to mention for a little while here, which is I mean, in the in the system that we live is is horribly un-Christian for or un like just for the the very sense that whenever I we see that, a poor
2: no, I'm sorry. But I just think um in, in, in a in a, in a social system that is so um, based on you know all of our relations are market relations market-based relations um it's just it's hard to, to introduce justice into that system that's going to make everybody happy you just can't I mean we, we really need the church let me get back to that that whole uh, the the gay marriage thing and in, in other right. words what I'm saying is ultimately that for me, it's 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 bitterly ironic that you have the most apostate church. You know, we're supposed to be the bride of Christ. You know, we're the, we're the most um, rebellious bride. Uh, you know, perhaps in the in the in world history, and we're getting fired up about the sanctity of marriage. <laughs> right, it's, it's, it's hugely ironic, and and it, it it demands you know it demands for us to respond. The way that, that Jesus, you know, asked for the Laodicean church to respond, and it's and it's funny, but he spoke to that church using the language of consumerism, because it's a language that they could understand. You know, he's saying, you know, you think you're rich and you have an abundance of possessions and you're in need of nothing. And he says, But what you should do is buy from me gold refined in the fire, white robes to cover your nakedness, and and I sap for your eyes. He's saying Look, you're so used to getting whatever you need in the marketplace. Well, I got something for you. You need to buy from me these things. Right. Speaking the language of consumerism, because that's all they know.
1: Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, uh, just to keep this in a you know in reasonable amount of time, and I know you got to get going too. Yep. But I, yep. I would I want to touch on Nimrod and um, how do you put together the concept of the resurrection of Nimrod, the second coming. Of the Antichrist. I'm assuming it's you're referring to Nimrod. Yes, yes. Okay, so oh. what's the, yeah, what's, how, how does that all come together um, uh, okay. for you? In my book, I just lay out I think it's
2: 16 different what I call dark reflections. In other words, how the Antichrist is the exact opposite of Jesus Christ. And, and one of those is the fact that Jesus, um, at the very end of Revelation ni- uh, 19, I believe, it talks about how, how John who's seeing the Revelation, he says, he looks up and he says, I saw heaven open. And then it shows the description of Jesus coming on the white horse. Okay? That is the actual second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Right. I think separate from the rapture, which happens earlier. Um, but that's the second coming of Jesus Christ from heaven. Okay? In distinction to that, I believe that the second coming of the Antichrist happens at the, at the fifth trumpet when it says that the keys were handed to this falling star who went down into, who was able to open the abyss and what do you have in the abyss? You have the introduction of these, these demonic armies coming out, and their king over them is, is Apollyon, also known as Abaddon. Right. Okay. So I believe I believe that's the Antichrist. I know he's referred to as an angel, but Jesus Christ is also referred to as an angel in Revelation. He's the messenger. That's what angel means. He's the messenger of the abyss. He's, his soul is coming out of the abyss to re-inhabit his body. Okay? Okay so I yeah th- this is this is new for a lot of people but I step by step I, I lay it out um, now but another thing though so I so I, I think that the whole seven year tribulation period it cannot even begin until after the fifth trumpet hmm. okay so I I say we all need to start from scratch pre-wrath pre-trib um, <laughs> we need to rewrite some of our uh, you know meticulously um, calculated tribulation charts um,
1: right
2: but uh so yeah i know this this is it, people have a hard time with this that that the antichrist would be allowed to be resurrected um but i think it goes back to how it's referred to in second thessalonians chapter two and it talks about an, an energy of delusion let's right. used inner Gaon so there's an energy released from heaven i believe i believe god resurrects the antichrist i do now uh Taking this back to the Old Testament, we know that when He comes, there will be a covenant confirmed, right? That begins the seven-year period, and I believe it's with Israel. Um, the Roman connection. There's a couple of different ways that uh, um, that, that can be explained. It's it's uh, it's uh, highly technical, though. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but what I want to do is go to Isaiah 28, okay? And a lot of people. A lot of serious Bible scholars believe that Isaiah 28 is also a reference to the covenant of the, the 70th week that's made between the Antichrist and Israel. Um, but the interesting thing about Isaiah 28 is is the Lord speaks to the leaders of Israel and says, um, you know, you think you're so good that you've made a covenant with death and with hell. But this covenant with death and with hell is going to be annulled. And you're going to see the error of your ways. and and you're either going to be judged by me or you're going to repent. That's what he says in a nutshell. But it says that the leaders of Israel believe in their hearts that they've made a covenant with death and with hell. And that really makes sense if we look at it as potentially um, they're making a covenant with someone that has whose soul has come out of the abyss, has come out of hell and has defeated death and he's been resurrected. And he's, and uh, I mean, look, I, I understand how crazy these ideas are, but I actually believe that a 5,000 year old corpse is going to be brought back to life and, and it's going to be, it's going to be huge. And that's, that's also explains why several times in revelation, I think in revelation 13 and revelation 17, it says the whole world was astonished when they saw the beast, they were astonished, they're astounded. And this is more than just you know uh uh, a world figure being possessed by an antichrist spirit that's not something that you can see why would the world be astonished was if someone is possessed by a spirit Right. right it's it's something that astonishes people because it's something that they see so that's that's just a brief insight into my line of thinking that that i'm actually much more um um clear and uh Concise and uh, point by point in my book, but uh, <laughs> go ahead. Right. Go ahead. Oh, that brings up a whole ton of other questions. So go ahead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's great. It's all very fascinating, and it's a, the thing I like is that it it sort of fits right in with what we like to talk about here. And, and I know we've, we've talked about some transhumanism stuff and how, uh, you know, that yeah. could possibly lead to the reanimation right. of, you know, right. the body of Nimrod Nimrod. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. No, I, yeah, there's, I think uh, Tom Horn has a different twist on this. My friend, Dr. Future does. Uh, I think Rob Skiba might also. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's definitely open to, uh, to interpretation and, and any of us, could be wrong, um, but I I'm sticking to the resurrection of a five thousand year old corpse. I, <laughs> I, I just think that's just the simplest, most logical explanation, even though it's crazy and totally astounding. But that's that's what the Bible seems to say. So, but yeah. I'm you know I could be wrong.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think it's important to you know consider the possibilities because yeah. when it does go down, we, we'll be able to you know understand yeah. it and, and know okay. Right. You know.
0: Yeah, so, and and don't be you know, don't worry about being wrong or feeling crazy. I mean yeah. just a couple episodes ago we were talking about colonizing Mars and uh <laughs> you know things like that. So we're used <laughs> to that around here. Yeah. <laughs> and Obama taking trips to Mars too. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> So Peter, what do you see happening in the next few years here? I mean we have um
2: well, okay, I'm glad you asked that. This is, this is getting right back
1: to, you know, we started
2: to step into the church and how, how is Babylon affecting the church? When, when, when I really believe it's the voice of Jesus speaking from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Um, you know, it's, it's the bride of Christ is being called out of Babylon. Absolutely. Um, but what I see is, is just the way that Babylon's system works. You know, it's just a market-based system. Commerce is huge in Babylon. Commerce is huge. That's like, that's like her bread and butter. You know, it's, it's a commerce based system. It's honestly, I believe it's global capitalism. It's the system that we have now that's led, that's controlled by at the top by the bankers, the IMF, the World Bank, and the, of course, you know, the World Trade Organization, right? That's Babylon. Babylon is here, folks. The Queen of Babylon reigns supreme today. We're not waiting for a rebuild Babylon. Babylon is here. Um, but the question is, what does it mean for the church to come out of Babylon? I, I believe that all our church structures are really run on a Babylonian template in the right. fact that, that um, you know, our churches are run like businesses. Pastors are CEOs. Um, leadership is lording over people precisely the way that Jesus said not to run things. Right. I mean, there's a whole ton of issues with the church. And, you know, we can go on and on about how how messed up the church is. But I, what I really see happening, in like you were asking, you know, over the next few years, months, years, you know, hopefully we have a few years. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I just, I really believe that there is, uh, there is a government, uh, uh, a template that's set up for for um, for church leadership, and I believe it goes back to. I think it's. I'm pretty sure it's in the Book of Ephesians. You know, it's the it's the fivefold. It's the it's the apostles, prophets evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Mm. That's, that's, that's the leadership. That's the true leadership. And the thing is, the, uh, it talks, there's another verse that talks about how the apostles and the prophets are part of the foundation. So uh, what I see, what I actually believe is that, um, is that as, as being part of the foundation, we're probably walking all over these true men of God right now. Hmm. We're walking all over them because we don't recognize them, Right, not raising them up to their leadership level, because these are the people that have the voice of God and they have the direction for the church. They have the strategy and and God is speaking to them. And, it, you know, the these uh, I I think also in in Ephesians, I wish I had my my scriptures together, but there's you know, there's all these verses that talk about the different gifts and the fivefold ministry is a gift to the church. But there's another uh, verse that talks about um gifts specific gifts and one of these gifts is the gift of administration okay
0: right
2: important because it helps to organize things and to put things in proper order um but i really believe that the that you know especially on the charismatic side of the church you have a whole bunch of people but really you had kind of this uh wave of of people embracing titles like i want to be a prophet i want to be an apostle and all that really was is senior pastors um, taking that title for themselves and saying, "You yeah, know, this is this is what I want to be. I want to be known as an apostle." Um, <laughs> but uh, honestly, the, the the way that the church structure is set up is if they're run like businesses, um, a lot of these people that are leading it, they're they're gifted, but they're not true apostles. They're not true prophets. All they are is they have a gift of administration. Right. And so they rise to the top in this, you know, business model kind of structure of the church. And and guess what? You know, of course, in the business world, in the world of commerce, in the world of corporations and companies, the gift of administration is amazing there, too. So you have CEOs rising to the top level in the business world. You have people with the gifts of administration rising to the top of the level of the church world. And they're looking across at each other and they're saying, hey, I like what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. (laughs) But it's wrong. We're not supposed to be led by these people. The gift of administration is important, but it needs to be in its proper relationship with the true people who are devoted to hearing the voice of God and to um, leading through service. You know, true apostles are, are like the humblest people you could ever meet. And there's only a couple of people I know that I would even consider attaching that label to. One of them, one of them is a is a relatively unknown guy in, in uh, Oklahoma, and another guy who's really more of a prophet. He's he's given up everything and he's gone to Kenya to to work in the in the biggest slum, one of the biggest slums in Africa. So those are those are two people that I really um, look up to as as being you know
1: authentic. In in those in those leadership roles. Yeah, and I think if you have to self-prescribe yourself as an apostle or a prophet or something like that, something's uh, wrong. Yeah, really? something's wrong.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But I will say that a lot of the modern church, uh, well, many movements in the modern church are, you know, trying their best to get back to that fivefold ministry, and. Uh, You know, at least recognizing that, but yeah, yeah, you're, you're very right that the, the, the business mindset in the church is very much prominent. And, you know, yeah,
2: honestly, it's, it's, we don't know any other way,
0: right? We don't know any other way. Exactly.
2: We need people of God to rise up and to demonstrate a better way. And I I believe that's what we're going to see.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you see, you see, uh, house churches popping up and things yeah. like that. And so that that seems to be one a response to I think the the problem that is very apparent. But yeah, like you said, there it's very hard to even imagine what a church that isn't sort of run like a building, a building, a a Without business, a building as a business. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just because of the culture we live in, there's yeah. you know you got to pay for stuff. Yeah. And so, and with that, you know, that's the whole basis of the, the Babylonian culture you're talking about. Yeah, right. So, very fascinating.
2: I'm, I'm excited. I got, you know, I, I don't, you know, there's that verse that talks about the, the great apostasy. You know, I, I don't think that applies to the church. I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for the church to get worse and worse and worse and to look, you know, more beat up and more ugly, you know, and the bride of Christ, and then when Jesus comes for his bride she's just going to be this poor beat up old thing no the 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 true church the true bride is waking up and and she's you know she's coming into you know she's developing the mind of Christ she's realizing who she truly is and and i i honest i really believe in a in a huge end times revival i absolutely believe that how can we believe anything else you know anything anything else would you know we are the inheritance that the father is going to hand to his son. Right. So it's, it's going to be good. But I just think with this whole come out of for my people message that I believe is being spoken from heaven right now, there's a huge hump that the church has to get over. Right. And, you know, and that goes right in line with the message to the Laodicean church. And and honestly, I believe it has to do with materialism. It believes it has to do with our mindset. It has to do with what are what is our heart set upon? And I got this little graphic on my website that I really believe is, is the heart of the message of, of what God's doing right now. It's, it's just realizing the fact that, that God gives us people to love and things to use, not things to love and people to use.
0: Mm. Beautiful.
2: That, <laughs> that's, that's huge.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that just about sums it all up, too, um, in a, a very poignant way. And so I think that's just about as much time as we have for tonight. Um, Thank Thank you you so much, Peter Goodgame, for coming on the show. Peter Goodgame, everybody. Redmoonrising.com. New book just came out, The Second Coming of the Antichrist. Thanks for coming on the show, Peter.
2: Thank you, guys. Love you guys. Appreciate it.
0: All right. And thank you guys for tuning in one more time. Be sure to check back soon for more Canary Cry Radio. Think outside the cage.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. The show notes for this episode and many others are available at canarycryradio.com. Make sure to connect and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash canarycryradio. Follow us on Twitter at canarycryradio. If you would like to share the show in video format, you can find us on YouTube by searching Canary Cry Radio. We would like to thank those of you who have given us your support, prayers, and donations. If you would like to join us and support Canary Cry Radio financially you could do so by visiting canarycryradio.com and clicking the support tab thanks again for listening and until next time remember to think outside the cage